you want to grab a Bible and turn there, we're going to be in two different sections of God's Word, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 32, and then in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Let's do this. You've been sitting for a little bit for a missions highlights. So why don't you stand for the reading of God's Word, shake a leg. And let's stand in honor and reverence to God's word. Hear God's word from Ephesians chapter 5, picking up in verse 21. We are to submit one to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body is and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife, in the same way, husbands love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Verse 31 is a quote from Ephesians chapter 2, and so we're going to read that as well. Pick it up in verse 18 through verse 25. It said this. This is in the creation account, first chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis. It said this, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone, so I'll make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not, a found, a, a, not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he made it into woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of God May it stand forever. You may be seated. Well, I've been here for 10 years, and um, uh, I have never once preached on marriage. Now, I've done 30 weddings in my 10 years here, Um, and so in that way, I've preached on quite a few times. Uh, I've done... About two-thirds of those, I've done the premarital counseling. At one point, about four years ago, I had six different couples I was doing premarital counseling with at the same time. That'll wear you out. But um, beginning today, we're going to um, start something. I'm going to use a basketball term, and it is called a full-court press. 
Some of you may be familiar with a full court press. It's where you cover the court from end to end when you play defense. And you, from the time they throw the ball in until they try to score, you are all over your, uh, offensive, the offensive players like white on rice. And so in all aspects in many of the adult ministries of our church right now, we are trying to make up for some lost time, 10 years worth. And so not only am I going to spend the next nine weeks preaching through Ephesians chapter 5, going into great detail on the issue of marriage, providing a theology of marriage as the Bible gives it. Ephesians chapter 5 is kind of the magnum opus of the Bible on marriage. But we also began last week in our adult Sunday school hour. We have an adult corporate class for anyone who are adults in this church to come and be part of a marriage class. In that class, we're going to be talking about the specifics, some of the uh, equipping you in regards to communication and conflict and, and in-laws and sexuality and these kind of areas. And we're dealing with some of those subjects. And so that's more specific and, and applicable. What we're doing on Sunday morning during the preaching time is going to be more of a theology in the vision God has given us for marriage. And so today will be introductory. It will be introductory uh, for the next eight to nine weeks of our time. We'll spend here for the rest of the semester on marriage. And so I want to begin with this to introduce this. Why talk about marriage? I'm going to give you five reasons to why we should talk about marriage. The first is this, and that's because, first is because it's what's next in the text. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 through 32 follows where we have been in Ephesians as we've been working through. And it says in 2 Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed, or excuse me, 1 Timothy, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and training in righteousness, including this passage on marriage. So that's one reason. It's next, it's there, and so we're going to talk about it. Second, we need to talk about marriage because it is God's. And he has some things to say about it that we need to hear. The major reason to hear what the Bible says about marriage, and that is that it's not an invention of man. We did not come up with this. It did not spring up as a social invention in the Bronze Age. Marriage was invented and given to us by God himself. And just think through the logic with me. If God, if marriage is God's invention, then the best thing you can do for your marriage either presently if you're married or in the future if you are not yet married, is to discover what God says it should look like. Think about how crazy it would be to um, ignore the owner's manual of your automobile and to fill your car's gas tank up with maple syrup. You would ruin your engine and you would ruin your car. And so it is for many of us. We are filling ourselves up with what the world, how the world views marriage and what its, its vision for marriage is, and it is choking our marriages out. So we need to hear what God has to say about it, to re-envision what God says about this vision for his institution that he has given us called marriage. Third, we need to talk about marriage because there are a lot of married people here. If you're married, there is no other relationship in your life that will shape the direction the happiness, or the sorrow of your life more than this relationship. Marriage, from an earthly speaking perspective, is the vortex of your life, if you're married. It becomes the controlling center. Meaning, if your marriage is strong, your career can be in the bucket. 
It can be in the pot. Your friends can turn their back on you no matter what else is happening to you. If your marriage is strong, then you can move out into life with strength. Such is the power of marriage. But if your marriage is bad, the opposite is true as well. Even if everything else is going wonderfully in your life, if your career is wonderful and it's going like gangbusters, everyone everywhere in town just loves you and slaps you on the back, you can have the house and the car that you want, but your marriage is weak and loveless, then you will enter the world from a place of weakness and brokenness. A bad marriage is like having a bad back. You ever had a bad back? Everything hurts. Even fun hurts. Sleeping hurts. Things that you never thought that your body could hurt doing hurts when you have a bad back. And if you have a strong back, there's amazing things that you can do. Such is marriage. Success in marriage is clearly one of the most critical ingredients to a happy and abundant life. Marriage is a big stakes kind of enterprise and few things will impact your life more than this and so we need to talk about it. So if you're married... Though we need to talk about it because it's not easy as well, though, right? Marriage ain't easy. Helen Rowland, who was a 20th century journalist and humorist, said this, Marriage is like twirling a baton and doing handsprings or eating with chopsticks. It looks easy until you try it. In the midst of the challenge, there are so many marriages in this room that are doing wonderfully. It is such a gift, and it's one of the great delights of being a part of a multi-generational church is that you can be someone who in your first and second and third year of marriage and the formative years of your marriage, and you can hang out with, mar- and with others who have been married for 50 and 60 and 70 years. We celebrated in our, mar- in our, our, our congregation a couple weeks ago, someone, a couple who had been married for 50 years. What a gift to be part of such a church where you can sit and you can sit at the feet of those who've done it for 50 and 60 years. But there is also, as much as there's many good marriages here, there's also other marriages here that are lifeless. They are a shell. Some are on life support. It's not just in our country, in our churches, that marriage as an institution is hurting, but it's that the people inside those marriages are hurting because of their marriage. That marriage, which is supposed to be a gift and a delight to their life, is quite the opposite. It is instead the greatest pain and sorrow in their life. But also here we have brand new marriages, full of high and full expectations, but being shaped and formed even now. There are marriages a couple years in where the spouses are beginning to look at each other and going, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And is this going to be what it's like for the next 50 years? And some marriages, and I'd say probably most marriages here, most marriages here are just fine. And that's just it. They're fine. They don't hate each other. They are generally getting along, but they don't really pursue each other very deeply, though, either. They are living parallel lives where they share calendars and a house and a few children, but there is no oneness. They're not experiencing the deep connection that the Bible gives us the vision that we're supposed to experience Some marriages here are persevering, but they're stagnant. There's no growth and no deeper understanding or pursuit. Just coasting along without a vision of what it could be, you've just accepted the status quo. Now, I know this. There are no perfect marriages here. And if there are anybody who tells you here that they have a perfect marriage, marriage, run away from them. You don't want their counsel. They're self-deluded. Which means this. There's no one sermon 
and not one sermon series that can fix a marriage. But here's what I want to do. In light of all the married people here and all those various various stages of marriage and various places of marriage, is I want to put some holy smelling salts under our nose and say, this relationship is important. Pay attention to it. I want to... (laughs) And for some of you, you're like, oh, no. This is not going to be good for my marriage. You know, I told my wife that back in February, and I was doing my preaching plan for the year, and I said, hey, this is just letting you know in the fall, I'm going to be doing a long marriage series. And that was her response, oh, no. Because whenever I do a preaching series on something, you know what happens in our own personal life? Things go wrong in that particular area. Lo and behold, we are in counseling. All right. um, (laughs) We're fine, though. F-I-N-E. No, we're great. We're great. We're fine. We're fine. I'm fine. (laughs) She's fine. We're great. We don't want to talk about it. All right. Fourth. Fourth. It's important because you're like, nine weeks, it's one passage. Preach on it and be done with it. Rip the band-aid off and move on. Nine weeks, Henley. This is so typical of you. Nine freaking weeks. We'd give you 45 minutes of endurance to begin with, and you're going to do it nine weeks. What about those who are singles? What about those who just, it's too painful, they're divorced, and they don't want to hear about this? For adult singles who want to get married, and there are, there are a number of those, this is important for them to hear because this will cast a biblical vision, and that's really important for dating. Hey, do you know, do you know the biblical view of dating? This is a question I've gotten from whether it be students or college students or young singles in their 20s. What's the biblical, biblical theology on dating? Well, that's an easy answer. You know what it is? Arranged marriages. That's what we see in the Bible is arranged marriages. Incidentally, by the way, if you're willing to, uh, to take a stab at that, I have some folks in our church who would love to try to arrange marriages for you, um, and I would be happy to participate in that as well. And you know, we're kind of returning to this. We just don't trust our parents to do it anymore. We trust a scientific algorithm, and actually it's showing itself to be, proving itself to be quite effective, this whole online dating thing. That is, what I'm saying is this, there is no biblical view of dating, but there is a biblical view of marriage. And if you're dating for the purpose of, of marriage, then knowing why you're dating or where you want that dating to lead to is really important for how you date and what you do in that relationship. To think through dating and through the lens of a future marriage is really important. What about those who are too young to get married? Well, they need a biblical vision of marriage too because the world is telling them, huh, some horrendous things about marriage. And so we need a corrective because since 2014, well, and long before that, but institutionally and lawfully, we've been actively trying to destroy marriage in this country and destroy sexuality and gender roles and what the purpose of this is. And so we need to talk about this to restore to our kids a biblical vision. Not only that, by the way, your kids live in your home, which means they are looking and watching at a probably not a perfect marriage. And so we need to set up a good vision for them in the midst of their less than good version that they have a front row seat to every day. And for those who are divorced and you're single, you need this because if you're being honest, you know it's possible that you have the most distorted view of marriage of anybody in this room. And perhaps because you were married and because it was awful, because it was hellish, You filter now your thoughts about marriage through your own past and your own bad memories and your own hurts rather than what God says about what marriage should be like. 
Now, if I haven't gotten you yet, if you're like, I don't know that I fit in any of those categories, I'm called to singleness and I'm happy right there. Or whatever it may be, if you're a widow or a widower and you're like, I've been married, that that person who I was married to was my spouse, that's it for life, I'm done. Well, maybe I haven't gotten you yet, but this one, this is the big kahuna, all right? This is the big one, because as we'll see in the course of this series, by studying marriage, we learn something of God's love for his people, and we all need that. This reason all of us should want to look at marriage is because, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, this mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. This is not as if Paul was grasping for metaphors like in the air. No, he's using a metaphor that God uses throughout the scriptures to describe his relationship with his people. Marriage is by design supposed to be a signpost that points beyond itself as a dramatization of God's covenant love and care for his people. And we'll look at that very, very specifically in a couple weeks. Marriage is the most graphic picture of God's love for his bride. And so my hope in this series is that we would begin to rightly view marriage as God calls us to view it. That we would begin to pursue our spouses and to live with, uh, with that spouse in submission to God's instruction for marriage. But then also that we would awaken some holy aspirations to live into God's holy and beautified vision for this relationship. And then cast a shadow in all of that most of all. To cast a shadow of God's love over you as his bride. So in the coming weeks, to give you a structure, here's where we're going. This morning, we're going to look at the essence of marriage. Next week, we're going to look at the problem of marriage. We're going to take a one-week break after that. Then we're going to look at the drama of marriage, the goal of marriage, the roles of marriage. We're going to look for a couple weeks at men and women, those roles in marriage. We're going to look at the cultivation of oneness in marriage, some of the practical aspects, and then the future of marriage. And if we, the schedule works out, we'll also do some time looking at Divorce specifically, and what the Bible says about that, and a beautiful theology of singleness. But this morning, I want to give our time simply to answering this question. What is marriage? What is it? I mean, like, more than half of us are involved in this, in this room. What are you in? Is it an institution? Mae West, who is a great uh, uh, playwright uh, in, in Hollywood, said, uh, marriage is a wonderful institution, But who wants to be institutionalized? (laughs) What is this institution that you're a part of? Here's the answer. I'm going to begin this way. What marriage is, I'm going to define it, I believe, biblically, as how, how the scriptures talk about it. Marriage is an exclusive and permanent covenant promise that binds a man and a woman for a lifetime of oneness. Marriage is an exclusive and permanent covenant promise that binds a man and woman for a lifetime of oneness. I'm going to look at this in the two parts that I see there. First is part A. Marriage is an exclusive and permanent covenant promise. And I take this from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Ephesians 5 quotes from this exact verse in Ephesians 5. It quotes Genesis 2, verse 24, where it says this. For this, man, verse three, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. That word, united, or um, hold fast, it says in some versions. United or hold fast. The Hebrew word literally means there to be glued together by a vow. To be glued together by a vow. 
To say a man and woman are to be united and to cleave together is to say that they make a covenant promise to one another that binds them together. We talked about this with sexuality. That that is the consummation of the covenant vow. That sex by design is to be holy, sacred glue that binds you together. Is the physical enactment of the vow and the promise. And so what I'm saying is this, is the essence and the core of marriage at its most defined quality is this, is a covenant promise. It's a promise. Marriage is not having intense and loving feelings or affections for someone. That doesn't make you married. You know, when I get home every day, the person who seems to have, or individual in my house who has the most intense and affection and feelings for me is my dog. Everybody else kind of like just goes about their day. My dog is quite happy to see me, but I am not married to my dog. Marriage is not primarily a way of even saying to someone, hey, I've shown up here because I want to say I love you. That perspective, if marriage is a way of saying I love you, and that's all it is, then marriage is it's about what you feel on your wedding day. A modern misunderstanding of marriage is to say that this is just a way of expressing your love to one another. And therefore, some people have looked at it and said, yes, but I don't need to be married in order to express my love. Why do I need a piece of paper and to go to the courthouse in order to express my love to you? And so they don't get married. And this is what is actually the stats are showing more and more and more. We're not getting married. We have the lowest marriage rate in the history of the United States right now. There's something, though, incredibly... (laughs) a comically unromantic about marriage vows. Ever thought about this? We tend to have this view of marriage and the wedding day, and we see it in this kind of gleaming, glistening light. Everything is a hue around the wedding day. We we feel these these romantic feelings, and we're all a flutter. There's an old German theologian who escaped the Nazis in 1937, and he wrote on theology, and his name was Otto Pieper, which is such a great name for someone who would write on marriage. But he said this, There is always an element of mistrust implied in every marriage ceremony. Right in the middle of this beautiful romantic scene is the implicit acknowledgement that there will be days that you want to walk away, which is why we vow. Think about the vows at the very heart of every wedding. You're saying, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse. And the reason why this is comic, and sometimes comic in a funny way, sometimes in a tragic way, do you really need to make a vow that says, you know what? I'm going to be with you no matter how wealthy you get. I mean, when you finally hit it big, that's the time I'm finally going to think about leaving you. Or I'm going to be here. Or the ballot says, no matter how buff you get, I'm going nowhere. No matter how strong you are. Or no, how, no matter how good the sex becomes. When we finally get this sex thing down, it just becomes awesome. That's what I'm going to decide. I'd better stick this out. You don't need a vow for that. You need a vow for the shadow side of marriage. And you're saying that the shadow side will come. That there will be a day when there's bankruptcy. And you're saying, I will be there on that day. You're saying that there will be a day of sickness. And I will be there on that day. That I will be there for worse. And that means the worse of you. And I will be there on that day. Our view of marriage, though, is often not covenant not covenant love and promise, but it's covenant consumer. The wedding vows of today are, I feel so in love with you today. I just, and I just want our flower, our love of, the flower of our love to just bloom and bloom and bloom. 
And our vows, instead of being for better or for worse, should read, I love you as long as you make enough money. And as long as you remain an emotionally healthy person. And as long as you keep a relative sense of physical health in which you don't have to need new dad pants every year. That this is, these are the vows that we should actually read to another if we're actually going by the consumeristic approach of the world. As long as I continue to feel loving towards you and as long as you, I continue to benefit from this relationship with you, then I'll promise to keep my end of the bargain. This is actually how we view marriage. And we, how we know that is because we leave it so often. It's because we have viewed marriage as when this is no longer doing much for me, when this is taking something from me, when this is no longer feeling very fun, when this gets really, really hard, I'm out. I'm out. Which means and shows that all along we were there just for ourselves to begin with. But true love, though, true love makes promises. True love binds itself. It straps itself to the mast of the ship and says, if it's going down, I'm going down with it. True love says that in my love, I will bind myself to you in such a day that even if a day comes when I don't love you, in fact, I don't even like you, that on that day is the day that I will lovingly pursue you. Incidentally, this is why the vows are always in the future tense. You're not saying, honey, I love you and you look beautiful today. No, you're saying your vows are for the future. I will love you. In other words, if you can imagine from your, I have a Google calendar, and I have certain things on my calendar in which it's every week, right? It's on repeat. And so what you're doing with your vows is you're putting on repeat on your calendar every single day, I will love my wife, I will pursue my wife, I will be faithful to my wife, and vice versa for the wife for her husband. That every day, two years from now, 22 years from now, what you're saying in those vows is, I will be there. I will be there. This is love without an exit strategy. You get in and you throw away the key. It is a love that promises and it says, no matter what, I am going nowhere. The promise, the promise marriage, the promise that this marriage cannot fulfill. It cannot fulfill what it's supposed to be, though. It cannot fulfill its purpose unless we have this covenant. And what is the purpose of marriage? This is the second half of the definition. It's oneness and intimacy. The covenant binds a man and woman for the purpose of oneness. Of oneness. There's a lot of ways to describe what oneness is. It's connection. It's intimacy. It's deep friendship, we could say. And you know what? The covenant promise actually does something. It is not just in the air. It binds us. And it makes us one. And the covenant itself and keeping the covenant becomes a power that will actually forge two people together over a lifetime so that more deeply over the course of years, they are more intimately and deeply connected than when they began. Now, where do I see this in the text? I see it in two places in Genesis 2. The first is this in verse 18. God has come and he's created, he's formed creation. And at the end of every day of creation, he says, it's so very good. It's so very good. He looks at creation. Everything is good until we come to a screeching halt in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And then it says there, the Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. It's not good. There was something that wasn't good. And therefore, I'll make a helper that is fit for him. Man is alone. People say, don't get married because you're lonely. Well, Adam did. <laughs> That's why God made it. 
The Lord said it's not good for a man to be alone. And for that, like, I would just say this as a very brief aside. If you're some, someone who late in life, either you got divorced or you, you lost your spouse through death, if you are lonely and you long for marriage, that is a creational image-bearing desire. And that is good. And so lay that desire before the Lord and do something if you want to. Pursue marriage again. But God created marriage for companionship. That is its purpose. It was created as a way to have a friend in worship. It's so interesting. Adam had God. He had God. And God said, in this, there's something about just this unilateral relationship that is not good. That we were designed to share worship with someone else. Our worship of God was designed where it is enhanced by talking about how much we love God together. You ever been on a roller coaster and not screamed? It is no fun to be on a roller coaster and not scream. There is something that is binding and enjoyable about screaming on a roller coaster where you talk about, wow, together, I'm screaming with you about how cool this is. There is something God has done in us. He has formed us to enjoy God together. And there's actually something about our image bearing, for we have a Trinitarian God. He has always existed in three persons that mutually love one another. And so we are created in his image, so you were designed for your relationships. So you're designed for companionship. Marriage is designed to meet your loneliness, which is why there is no one more lonely than someone who is in a loveless marriage. Because they went to the one place that God in his creation order said you were supposed to not be lonely. And yet there, that's why it's so hurtful. So interesting enough, just as another quick aside, for those of you that are in the dating world, this should tell you something about who you marry. We're after deep friendship here. Deep friendship here. That should tell you about who you look to as your mate. In other words, you're asking the question before you make a vow to somebody, could we be best friends? Could this person be my greatest helpmate and my greatest number one counselor? So that's one way in which we see it in the text, that God has created marriage for oneness. But second, do you see where else it is? It's there in verses 25. Verses 24 and 25 says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. One flesh, it says. One flesh. And this friendship combines connection in all areas of life. Oneness. Everything is combined. This is more than the normal relationship. You know, there's a lot of things that Andy Waz, Nikki, and I share in common. We have a, a job together. We, we serve together. We are friends. We share a lot of our life together. All right? But if I go today and I withdraw money from Andy's bank account, he is not going to be pleased. We have not bound ourselves at that, at that level. Or if we go to a pastor's conference together and we're staying in the same hotel room and I forget my toothbrush and I'm like, oh, look, Andy's toothbrush, I'll use that. That is a no-no. That is a line that we are not crossing that you might only do with the person with whom you are one. Marriage connects us sexually, yes, but spiritually, emotionally, financially, parentally, you are one. You are sharing everything in this covenant. You are sharing, most of all, yourself with the other. And how is this oneness typified or exemplified? What's the illustration, the word picture he gives in verse, at the end of verse 25? The height of oneness is what? 
and they were naked, and they were not ashamed. In other words, it means this. To be naked and not ashamed means that you are fully known. You are fully exposed, and you are fully known, and there is no shame in that. You don't flinch when they cast their eyes upon you. And you don't flinch when you cast your eyes upon them. Adam and Eve lived before the fall, and so the covenant took immediate effect upon their oneness, right? Oh, we're one. Yay! Naked and unashamed. We live after the fall, and we'll talk about the fall next week. But that makes the covenant all the more important. Because the covenant, oneness, to be naked and unashamed, to be fully known, that takes time for both parties. You see, when you're dating and you're engaged, and even early in marriage, there are things about it yourself that you're ashamed of, and there's things about yourself that you're ashamed of that you didn't even know were there until someone started looking at you really closely. And you begin to go, oh, oh, that's not a good part of me. <laughs> and of course, early on, you don't want them to see your flaws. When you're dating or engaged and early in marriage, and for, for a long time, you know what you do? You hide your flaws. And that means that there is a sense in which early love, it may come with its emotional highs, is nothing like love later in life. Later in life, when they have seen for 40 years the best and the worst of you, and they have stayed. But the problem is, and you may or may not be aware of this at all, but the problem is that without exposure, that person doesn't fully know you yet. They, 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 they love the doctored up version of you. But at some point in the course of marriage, you must be exposed in order for this oneness and this deeper connection to occur. Your fears and insecurities have to be put on the table. The things about you that are sensitive and sweet and the things about you that are sinful and shameful must all be put out there. Now here's the thing. Sometimes when you discover the truth about someone, what do you want to do? Run. Run. Now, that what's, this is what's great about dating. I'm not, a, I'm not super proud of this. But I dated a girl, I took her on three dates. My freshman year at Covenant College. First date, she's super cute, beautiful girl, very smart, as you would expect that I would date, right? And, um, and um, about the third date, about halfway through, I realized that her voice made me want to like, crawl up things. <laughs> and that was it. In other words, what had happened? This poor girl, I had run into something about her that I said, me no likey, I am running for the hills. Now you can do that in dating. In marriage, you're stuck, big fella. Deal with the, scr the scratchy voice. But you don't get to run for the hills. And that's what's beautiful about the covenant. So how do you stay? How do you stay and move towards someone when something about them has gotten exposed that is not easy to love? In that moment, what do you have to do? You have to cling to your promise. You promised. And because you promised, you, instead of running for the hills, you move towards them. You move in. You don't run away. And when that happens, when that occurs in your marriage, that is where oneness and connection is formed. True intimacy where you go cover them and care for them. Not just what is, what is evidently beautiful about them, but those things that they view themselves to be ugly about. 
And on the flip side, sometimes, you know, we are the ones who get exposed in marriage. And something about us that we have kept deeply hidden, perhaps even from ourselves and the pressure and the fishbowl of marriage has now left you exposed. And so you're standing there naked and so very ashamed. How do you keep running? Because that is the instinct that so many of us have. I can't stand the gaze. I'm going to go back into hiding in this marriage. I'm going to deaden this part of our relationship. That is a place she or he can't go and they can't touch. Or I'm out of here entirely. But how do you stay? How do you stay, remain there, ugly and ashamed and naked? Because you promised. And more importantly, because they promised. And on their wedding day, on your wedding day, they gave you a sign of the covenant. Which means this. When my wife, if there's something about my wife that she finds undesirable about her, and she realizes it, that I realize that. One of the things that she has to remember, she has to look at her hand, and she has to sing a wet, see a wedding ring. That wedding ring that she has on her finger is not about her promise to me. It's about her remembering my promise to her. In other words, she looks down and remember, there was a day in which he said, for better or for worse. He's going nowhere. He's going nowhere. And when you remember the covenant, in that moment, it forges the ability to remain naked and ashamed until you come to a place of unashamed. Tim Keller puts it this way. We talked about this in the marriage class the last two weeks. He says this, and so beautifully said. He said, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. That's the part, that's the social media view. That's the dating and engaged and early marriage part of you. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, well, that is a lot like being loved by God. You see, indeed, it is the covenantal commitment that enables married people to become people who actually love each other deeply. Where you actually sit there and say, I know every part of who you are, the good and the bad, and I have gone nowhere. Andrew Peterson is my favorite singer-songwriter, as you would expect I'd probably be, is one of those guys who likes the kind of the guy with the guitar and the singer-songwriter type, but bear with me. He says this in a song called Dancing in the Minefields. And the minefields are those things that we find out about ourselves and find out about our spouse that make us want to run. He said this in the refrain of that song, we went dancing in the minefields. We went sailing in the storms. It was harder than we dreamed but I believe that's what the promise is for. So let me ask you this. Now, there's kids in the room, <laughs> and they're like, that's, marriage sounds scary. Uh, it's like the first time I ever told one of my children about sex, and that, that child was like, aren't you glad you and mom only had to do that three times? Like, that sounds horrific. <laughs> well, let's be honest. Let's not be honest. Let's be honest about this. Let's not go with the romanticized syrupy part of this. This is scary stuff. How do you actually have the guts to make this kind of promise? Or if you get into it and you go, oh no. <laughs> oh no. 
You ever heard the story about from another pastor who was doing the wedding of a, of a, of a guy in his church? I've had this experience as well. And, and, and this, the, he was sitting there, and they were outside. You know, there's, there's this experience that pastors have where it's usually happened, by, if I marry someone, it's back behind this door where I'm there with the guys, the, 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 the groom, and we're about to come out for the beginning of the ceremony. And in this particular case, this pastor was talking about this, this groom, and this guy was sweating bullets. I mean, this guy was clearly terrified. I mean, just absolutely handshaking. Everything is just sweaty. I mean, this guy looks like he's falling apart. And his best man says, dude, dude, it's okay. There's no reason to be afraid. <laughs> and the pastor looked at him and said, no, you should be afraid. You should be very afraid. <laughs> Who wouldn't be scared? You're making a promise for the future when you don't know what the future holds. You ought to be scared to make a promise for the future is difficult. Joe Novison, who's a retired preacher in our, our denomination, was in a conversation about his own wedding day one day, and he shared that on his own wedding day, he had his best man take a can, a can of aerosol antiperspirant and deodorant spray and spray his entire body from top to bottom. By the way, never do that. You, you could die. Seriously, I've, I've read stories about people that this happened. Never do that. And, and when telling the story, he had, his friend asked him, well, why? Were you terrified of getting married? Were you terrified you were marrying the wrong woman and that everyone was there and that it was too late to back out? He said this, no, no, I was afraid because I knew that Barb, his wife, was going to find out what I was really like. And I was so afraid that when she found out, she would leave me. You will... <laughs> What is evidence that something is deeply concerning about our marriage and our culture is not just the divorce rate. That's been bad for a long time. It's the rate of being married. We aren't even willing to try it anymore. We aren't even willing to commit. It's the lowest in American history. Only 20% of Americans, even, even with those who get married, they're not even getting married till later in life. Only 20% of Americans get, get married before 30 now. We've now passed the threshold that there's more non-married adults in America than there are married adults. How do we enter into this? How would you have the guts to enter in such a covenant? Well, remember that there's another who is better than your spouse who made a vow to us. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, but I'm speaking about Christ and the church, and I don't want to give away the lead too much. We'll get there in a couple weeks. But marriage is at its best as a signpost and it points about to us about our relationship with God. In Genesis chapter 15, there is this grotesque and graphic covenant that is made. It's a profound scene where God makes a covenant with his people, particularly through his relationship with Abraham. And he tells Abraham, he says, hey, we're going to do a covenant and we're going to do it like the nations around you do covenants. See, back then in the ancient Near East, when they did a covenant, whatever the two parties of the covenant would do is they would slice together multiple animals into two parts. And they would put one of the half of the animal here, another half of the animal here, and they would then create a bloody path of entrails. And each member of the covenant would walk right through the center of those animal parts. And it was a way of saying this, if I do not keep my end of the bargain, may what happened to these animals happen to me. And in Genesis 5, chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham of his people. 
And yet when it comes time, he has Abraham slice the animals in half and create this grotesque path on the ground. And yet when it comes time for Abraham, for God to walk through the path, God says, Abraham, I'm going to put you to sleep and only God walks through. In other words, God is saying this, that in this covenant with you, that I am going to keep my end of the bargain. But even if you don't keep your end of the bargain, I will take even your curses upon me. I will take the cost. I will keep the covenant no matter what. God enters into covenant with us. And you see, it's profound that he would do that. We enter into marriage not knowing about who we're marrying in many ways. But it says this in Ephesians chapter 1, in love he predestined us. Which means God has covenanted himself with a bride. He already knew all her problems that were going to be coming. He knew that we were going to be adulterers and unfaithful. And yet he vowed anyways. And he vowed not only saying, I'm going to be unfaithful to you, but I'm going to be so faithful to you that even when you're unfaithful to me, I'm going to bear the curses that were supposed to be for you upon myself. And the good news is this, God knows not only who you are, but he has promised from before time, he has said, I am going nowhere. And so you can tell your, I don't have, you can know that I don't have a perfect spouse. You can tell yourself this, I don't have a perfect spouse. And guess what? I never will. But I know of one who will never reject me and will never be unfaithful to me who will keep his covenant faithfulness from me from beginning to end, who knows me and always has, and he still chose to bind himself to me anyways. You see, when you see your covenant-making God make a covenant like that, maybe it would give you the guts to be a person who makes a commitment like this and to do it day in and day out. And those moments when you feel naked and exposed or when you know your spouse is to say, listen, this is dangerous. This is so very scary, but I'm going to enter in because I know that I'm secure in the one who has covenanted with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be with us in these nine weeks. Lord, this, does, this feels scary even to talk about, Right? When we start looking at our marriages, we start having to deal with problems or they, we begin to see the ugliness and we begin to have conversations with our spouses. We would just rather not have. And so, Lord, this, this series could bring up some conversations and some difficulties. And so, Lord, I pray that when that happens, we would not go back to the easy and comfortable places. But Lord, we would want to be, we would want to live into the abundant marriage and the vision that you have cast for us in your word. Lord, where that feels scary, I pray that we remember the promises that we have made before you and before hundreds of people perhaps saying, I will never leave you. I am going nowhere. And so Lord, I pray that your spirit would come and fill us up for this task. That is the context, Lord, of Ephesians 5 as we talked about last week, that you would fill us up for the task of submitting ourselves to one another in this great institution called marriage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.